This is Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. Each week, we feature conversations with experts in leadership, management, human resources, culture, and technology to help you succeed in this new normal. This is your host, Benoit Ardivalle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Abrupt Future, a podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dustin Seal, who's a managing partner at Hydric Consulting in Europe. So first of all, Dustin, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Dustin, I'd love to speak with you about leadership, about the evolution of our always changing, surprising world of work. Before we do that, maybe just a little introduction of your background, interests, and the role that you play in uh, in Hydra Consulting. Sure. So you can hear from the accent. I run Europe. I'm not originally from Europe. I grew up <laughs> in in the U.S. And 27 years ago, moved to Europe for one-year assignment uh, and obviously haven't turned back. Uh, my focus over the years have been has been primarily organizational culture. So how do you optimize culture for whatever an organization is trying to do? And the biggest component in optimizing a culture, getting a culture to a new place, is leadership. And most of our clients over the years have been organizations that are seeing some sort of disruption or change in their marketplace, and they're changing themselves. We're currently in one of the biggest disruptions in at least my lifetime. So it's leading to a lot of questions around where is leadership going? Where is culture going in this new world? Indeed. And as a Canadian living in France, I understand also the appeal of uh, Europe. I, I was reading one of your articles that you wrote in the HR magazine, and it was right in the middle of the COVID crisis. You outlined four different scenarios for what post-COVID would look like. We're not necessarily post-COVID yet, or maybe we, we don't know exactly when or what will post-COVID look like, but you, you talked about different scenarios, the digitals and clubs, the tech-powered humanity, the growing divide, and the, the Indus together. Could you, could you walk us through those different scenarios? Sure. Um, I think it's, a, it's an important thing to take a step back and look at why were we helping leaders with different scenarios mm -hmm. and looking at the future through different lenses. Uh, and it's simply that a lot of thinking and strategy is is too linear. And it's thinking that I, I know the future state or the state of the world, so I create a, a plan or a strategy based on basically a straight line. Scenario thinking is not new. It came out of the the uh, the petroleum disruptions years and years ago. Uh, but it's looking at different potential futures. And removing the thinking from a linear view of the, of the future, but through multiple vectors. And no one scenario ends up being the future. If, if we could do that, we'd be certainly special. Yes. But it's, it's getting a view on what are potential futures. And you need to narrow it down because there's a, there are a lot of different elements of the future, things that can, can, shape the future going forward. So we had to narrow down on what are, what are the two 
factors that we're going to look at. And we're looking at it strictly through the future of human capital. What sort of leadership will be needed? What are the impacts on the future of work and the shape of the workplace? And then through what sort of culture an organization will need to actually traverse a, each of the different scenarios. No one scenario will end up being it. It'll be bits of each, and maybe one will not be part of it. But it's understanding nonlinear thinking and looking at the, the future through different lenses. So the two vectors we chose were, one, how quickly does the economy rebound from the disruption, from the pandemic? And then the second is social trust. So how safe do we feel with one another? Uh, that can be from a health standpoint, but it's also from a social standpoint with the institutions we interact with. So from a prolong prolonged recession to a quick rebound and from low social trust to high social trust. And if you think about the, the different quadrants, digital enclaves is a quick rebound but low social trust. And it's it's a derivation of what we're seeing in, uh, in the wider world right now. Digital enclaves are when I'm spending more time in a narrower digital space with people who think like I do. So echo chambers. And it starts to splinter organizations or countries or societies because people are in these, these encapsulated segments. And the characteristics uh, that come from that, people are using technology a lot. The social trust in terms of safety and trust in institutions is lower. And you probably see uh, some of the things that would be coming out of that would be division, uh, localization, nationalism, a lot of things that would come from splintering any any group or society. So that's the quick rebound, but low trust. And if you had a quick rebound, but high trust, we call that tech-powered humanity. That is a world in which the economy has come back and we're actually, we've learned from the disruption and are leveraging technology in ways that we hadn't imagined or much earlier than expected. There's high usage of tech as a way of making things happen, but also connection uh, amongst people. People actually start to value the face-to-face -face connection more so than ever because they didn't have it. Now they mm -hmm. do. But it's used face-to-face -face or personal connection is actually used when it's most needed. So when it's essential. Because my experience right now is when we get groups of people together, it just lights up. People miss people. Oh, yeah. And and we also use digital formats, and they're also good, but it will be a mix in that tech power to humanity. With a prolonged recession and low trust, you'd have that growing divide, haves and have-nots, the digital haves, the non-digital have-nots. There's likely a lot less trust in our institutions and a lot less trust of one another. I don't know anyone I've talked to said, I hope that's the future we go to, though there is a distinct possibility. And then in the, the high trust but prolonged recession, we call this in this together, which is simply we have a bumpy road and there's a prolonged challenge for organizations and for economies, but people bind together to actually solve these uh, challenges together. And there's a high level of connection in teams, in organizations and across society. Those are the four vectors.
On the uh, on the aspect of division, I know there's a uh, famous author, uh, is David Goodhart, who talks about the difference between the the somewhere and the anywhere, and and I think there's a a scenario in which we would see the increase of remote work creating these communities of maybe a certain elite who can work from anywhere and go to a certain location versus groups of workers who are more tied to physical location and physical asset. So I think there's a little bit of that in your in your uh, scenario. D- do you think that characterization is, uh, of somewhere versus anywhere is, is a... a a true vector is something that's shaping our near future or, or are we missing something by using these two categories? Uh, I'm not sure you are missing something. I think that's uh, sound thinking. And I think we're seeing that uh, as organizations wrestle with the future of work. So there are, there are organizations we work with where, where they're manufacturing and uh, key local supply chain roles they just can't move. You can't be somewhere else. Yeah, You actually have to be in a physical place. Uh, my life uh, as a consultant, as with yours, is much easier to be anywhere and to actually do work from a technological standpoint, but also face-to-face. You have a great deal of flexibility. So it does change company by company, industry by industry, what that means. I think haves and have-nots. Uh, I, th- I do see at the moment wage inflation on the the somewhere part of the equation. So there is a future Mm -hmm. and a strong future, I think, in the somewhere category. Uh, Some of that has to do with lack of of, uh, labor and resource. So that's that's created uh, even better future for people in the somewhere category. In the everywhere category, um, it does give you a great deal more flexibility. You you could work in a different part of the world from wherever you want to be. And it gives clients uh, of ours, companies around the world, uh, access to talent that they never had access to before. There are threats, there are puts and takes on both sides of that equation, but I do think Mm -hmm. part of that future world will have a bit of that in it. I don't know, it depends on how we lead, whether it creates a divide or you actually maximize by having those two elements. And I think you're bringing the essential point here about leadership, right? I mean, obviously, you spend a lot of time with these leaders. Um, throughout the crisis, there has been, or the pandemics, let's say, there has been a lot of reflection on how, as a manager, you need to adjust to hybrid or remote work. And, you know, it's a continuation of a conversation about how managers should be more coaches and so on. So I think this is relatively well-defined in many literature. What I I have seen less defined or explored is the impact on on C-suite, on senior, on, on top leadership. So if you are a CFO, CEO, CHRO nowadays, and you look at this unfolding new world, what do you need to do differently? Because you're a people manager, so that part, you know, you might be managing your team slightly different. But when you look at your organizational scope of responsibilities, what have you seen doing different or what have you advised organization to consider differently? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I was with the CEO the other day and she was sharing with me 
what she thought about the future and the future of the organization. And what she shared with me is this is the first time in my career, and she's been a CEO a number of times, where everything I look at is an educated guess. There are no certainties. Mm -hmm. And I do think that this world that we're in today, we're in the midst of a disruption. I think the world going forward is a series of disruptions. I don't think this is going to calm down. We're looking at labor shortages. We're looking at supply chain disruptions. We're looking at energy, lack of or scarcity, division in Western societies, especially. So sort of two sides of the house, if you will, in, in, mm-hmm. uh, in country cultures. All of these elements create big uncertainties as we look forward. So I think of number one for leaders in the C-suite, there's two capacities, I think, that are interlinked. One is foresight, which is living in the future or potential futures and noticing the ripples, the changes that you're feeling from that future and being able to bring that back to now. So the, one of the biggest differences amongst senior executives, C-suite executives, when we're assessing executives for key roles, is how far out can you see? And are you able to bring that future back to action now? So that'd be one. The second is, is related, which is make uh, ambiguity, disruption, constant change your friend get comfortable in that world, but also not just get comfortable. Anytime there's change and disruption, it's opportunity. One of the natural responses in people is to fear that. The leaders that are distinguishing themselves actually lean into it and see change and disruption, not as a threat, but as an opportunity. So those are the two capabilities. In terms of leading people, our data, we've spent a lot of time collecting data through uh Surveys with leaders, with organizations, both on the leadership and the cultural side of the equation. And there are a couple themes coming up that people need from the C-suite. So on all the elements within leadership from the C-suite, a number of them, we'd look at about eight, only two have moved significantly in terms of a need in organizations from their most senior leaders. So those two elements... They've moved nearly two standard deviations. And number one is purpose. And not the purpose that organizations have plastered on their wall and refer to occasionally, but truly living and embodying a purpose of an organization beyond the profit, but our impact on the world, positive impact on the world, and helping every person in the organization connect that with themselves. That's moved uh, more significantly than anything else. It shouldn't have been a surprise, but this pandemic has highlighted for people that they want to be doing something that's bigger than just work. And so that purpose element is, is needed from the top and authentic purpose. The second is trust. Do I believe in you? Do I believe in where you're taking us? Uh, do, do your actions and words match That need amongst people, especially people that are working from their homes or have a distance from you, that sense of trust is moved considerably. And everything you need to do from the C-suite needs to match actions and words so that if I'm remote, I know you, I trust you, I'm willing to put in that discretionary effort and go with you. There are a couple other things that have come up. We also look at what are the key derailers in the C-suite. So what are the things that can take leaders and then 
as a consequence, the organization's off track. And those derailers are usually a mixed bag. There's 10, and they may have to do with different topics amongst leadership. Today, seven of the top 10 all have to do with the ability to create clarity and prioritize, to do less or to do the right things. I have a client today that has 137 key strategic initiatives. There's no way anyone in the organization can make sense of that. Yeah, Uh, that's a lot of key. Yeah, that's a lot of keys. Uh, I think I was with another today that has 17. I still think it's too much. Yeah. So leaders that are able to create clarity and help organizations prioritize time, money, and energy around those elements is going to be a key differentiator. And then the last one I'd share with you, there's actually two. One is we have been looking at what has been the biggest differentiator for companies in the midst of the pandemic and what are the biggest drivers of performance for organizations. The the top for both those questions is collaboration. So organizations that have outperformed through the pandemic have high levels of collaboration across organizational boundaries So it's within teams, but it's also across teams. So it's up, down, side to side. They have a natural tendency towards collaboration. That has to start at the top. You have eight, 10, 12 big personalities usually in that room. There are frequent occurrences of those big personalities not working as closely together, collaborating the way they could. So getting the right level of collaboration and connection at the top is going to be mission critical. And the last you already mentioned, we're all taking ourselves and our people through big change. So it means changing the way that we think, the way we engage, the way we do our work. We need coaching. Every one of us, myself, you, everybody I work with, everybody who works for my clients. If you have a culture where you only say nice things or you say nothing at all, it's not going to get you there. So a culture of from the top. So this means C-level executives coaching each other, not just their people, and coaching upward to their CEO and to their board. That culture is going to be critical going forward, and it starts at the top. Wow, that's a good uh, overview of the the new face of leadership. I guess on the one hand, it certainly sends a signal of increasingly more human or humane uh, leadership, especially now that we get systems and bots and apps to do a lot of the tasks so that that frees up the the mental and social space for leaders to bring their their humanity. But another takeaway I have from that is, you know, just like in the pandemics and even before, we we talked a lot about the importance of work-life balance or integration. And then with the pandemics, it made it very clear that you're not just hiring human resource and capital, you're hiring people. It's their whole life and part of their life is working. So so we we had, you know, front and center that perspective. When, it, when I listen and reflect on what you just shared, I, I see also that we have just like we have to think of the individual in its whole life, we have to think of the organization and its role in society. So the, the again, the somewheres and the anywheres, the impact on uh, the uh, potential divide, uh, you know, the, the trust and the, and the economies. I think it 
open the aperture for leaders to consider more than, you know, optimizing process and better decision making. And the more, I guess, the more rational way of leading organization that past century of management uses too. Now Mm -hmm. we, it sounds like we're moving toward a, I don't know if it's an employee era or a more human era. Um, Anyway, so that's a... (laughs) For yeah. First takeaway, I, I don't know if you think that captures some of your uh, perspective. Yeah, it's right at the core of what I was sharing. And I think for every one of us leading people, well, I'd hope for every one of us, the pandemic has been a great learning ground. So over the years, I think I've been okay at managing, you know, good enough at managing people. In the pandemic, it became clear to me that not just in the pandemic, but my whole life, what I've been missing is I'm managing persons. Each individual has a different experience, a different set of expectations, uh, different needs. So in the pandemic, it was clear because someone could be stuck in the pandemic when we were in lockdown on their own. That was a very different experience than I was having where I was locked down in the countryside with my family. So my quality of life was going up and theirs was struggling. Or if somebody was managing small kids, which was no picnic during the, mm-hmm. the lockdown. So you start to understand that you're, you're managing persons. And if you're looking at enabling, uh, you know, getting the most from every person that joins your organization, unlocking their capabilities, leadership and all the systems around it are going to be more bespoke. So I think... The pandemic has highlighted that, but then the largest group within the working world now is millennials, and the next generation mm-hmm. is joining the work world. And I think you need to look at, so what world did they grow up in? It's different than the one I grew up in. When I grew up, there were if I went to buy tennis shoes, the, there was one store, and it had three colors. <laughs> you know, we were, yeah. in, we were in Dubai this past week, and we were in the different uh, big sports stores, there's hundreds of different shoes, each one talking about you know, your, what you want to do with it, but also your style. It doesn't represent who you are. They've grown up in a world where the world is actually meeting their bespoke needs, their sense of self. My children have never grown up in a world where they didn't have a screen on which they could choose which apps they wanted. And those apps created communities and those apps created access. So they're building their digital life. And that does a, that's a big part of how they interact with friends. Again, I'm, I don't want to age myself too much. We had four television stations and that's all. That was yep. your choice. Netflix. You can watch any movie or, or it could be um, Prime Video or any other platform. Just about any movie from any time when you want to. So that's the world they've grown up in. So their expectations of leaders and their expectations of the culture around them are going to be different. So long story short, that space in leadership, you're going to be, like you said, managing individuals. You need commonality and consistency, but it's not going to be good enough that the old platforms of everybody's the same and everybody goes through the same. And on on a similar topic, I saw also in another HR magazine, you were saying, you know, the the leadership that I see across the spectrum 
the, the impact on sustainability and inclusion is not uh, inspiring, right? So if you don't mind me quoting you, I think it's, it's good, strong feedback that you're giving to leaders that they might be operationally managing their shop, but they're not necessarily looking at the broader lens of sustainability and uh, inclusion. Do, do you find it's getting more inspiring now? Is that evolving? Is there a new generation of leader that's, uh, I guess, more open to these uh, factors? Yeah, I, I chose these two factors because they're near and dear to my heart. And yes, I do see progress uh, throughout the pandemic. We've been doing a lot of work in both areas with our clients around the world. And there is a changing mindset and practice around that. We're not there yet. And so why why was it uninspiring? And now maybe it's mildly inspiring. And I, I'll go to, I was on the train on the way back from London. And I saw out of the corner of my eye in the newspaper, Britain leads the way on sustainability. I thought, wow, that's great. So I, I turned the page, found the article and started reading it. What it actually said is that British companies, PLCs, were the first to actually announce sustainability targets. Huh. Now, that's like me announcing before anyone else that I'm going to get fit. Yes, in five yeah. years, you know. Yeah. In five years, I will be pounds. very fit. <laughs> yeah, so I'll be very fit, very thin in five years. Well, announcing first is not is not a win. It's the doing of it. Um, so there are a couple of things that I find that are going to be needed. One is announcing is good. That's fine. More importantly, what are you doing today? Because a 2030 target is relatively meaningless to most of your population, especially the leaders, all of which will be retired by then, the senior leaders. So if you just set this thing too far out, 2030, or if you're in other parts of the world, 2060, it's a nice idea. I remember a large bank announcing that they were going to change their culture and say it would take 10 years. And in one sentence, they made culture irrelevant. 10 years. So that's mm. far too far. So 2030 is it, you can have targets for that point in time. What's going to be important is what are you going to measure this next quarter? What are you going to change? What's going to happen in six months? What's going to happen in a year? What happens in two years? So that you actually see the building blocks that add up to that 2030. And I think we're a long ways off getting that level of specificity around meeting those targets. Now, these are hugely complex challenges. I don't discount that, but it has to be broken down. and has to be turned into real action. On the inclusion question, why have I been uh, a little less inspired by that? Most organizations uh, have woken up to the fact that diverse and inclusive organizations outperform. Most of the data indicates that. They also know that they could literally, from consumers, lose their license to trade if they don't put on the face, the face of the organization doesn't match their consumer or customer base, they, they can see that there are some existential threats if they don't tackle this problem. And as, I, as I've looked at how they've tackled it, probably two different directions, both of which are not bad, but they're not complete. One is simply addressing representation, hiring people of different backgrounds. 
so that the complexion of the organization looks different. The second is maybe running training courses and helping people see unconscious biases to start to open up the conversation. Not a bad thing, but the research we've done into, let's say, unconscious bias training, I think $8 billion was spent in the U.S. alone, and there's no evidence that it actually changes the level of inclusion. And there is some evidence that training actually reinforces previous stereotypes. So to get at that question, I think we need to raise inclusion, diversity and inclusion, to a strategic priority tied to the strategic ambitions of the organization. Do build that representation, the internal pipeline, the external pipeline of talent, but it requires a truly inclusive culture, a change in the way the organization works to make that new talent uh, create a place where they will thrive and where you can actually get the best out of diversity to drive different outcomes. I'll just say one other thing about that. I think part of leadership's challenge is that we're, we're not too bad at defining future goals, especially if they're a long ways out. We're less good at bringing that to right now and what I need to do, unless it's a crisis. So if you look at the amount of resource, trillions of dollars spent to prop up economies and companies and help people through this pandemic. Yesterday in the paper, we're struggling to find $200 billion to address the climate change challenges in developing countries. So we can find multiple trillions for an immediate crisis. But this thing, and I, I actually think we've already missed the boat. I think we, it, we're moving towards one5 degrees change, regardless of what we do, which actually threatens not not our planet, our planet will be fine, threatens a planet on which we can live on, we can't find the money for. So there's there's something that will have to change in leaders in terms of their ability to not not wait till the wave is crashing over their head and then to scramble, but actually see the wave when it's a ripple out in the future and start addressing it now. And that's true for sustainability. That's also true for creating truly inclusive organizations. And you know, one thought I had as you were describing that when there's a crisis, like you said, people react and suddenly money appear uh, by magic. I, I was thinking about sales management, right? Organization put an incredible amount of effort into setting sales goals, defining activities that will progress the deal, defining step to close, reporting, explaining the gap. If we apply the same amount of diligence, process, even sometimes micromanagement that we apply to sales to sustainability and inclusion, we might be living in a, uh, in a different world. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that I've spent a lot of my life in the organizational culture space. And in talking to leadership teams, you know, I'll ask them, how often do you look at the numbers? And they'll say, well, we'll look at last week's numbers and we look at projections mm -hmm. for next week and we're tracking and we're adjusting. Second question is, how often do you look at culture? And usually either a culture or an engagement survey is every two years. And I, you know, <laughs> what I'm sharing with them is that if you measure this thing every single week and this other thing every couple of years, 
what do you think your organization thinks is important to you? Yeah. Now, you don't you can't measure culture every week. But if you don't give it the attention and the diligence and uh, the appropriate drumbeat that you're actually tracking tightly and playing that back, then you're going you're gonna to lose traction. The same thing's true, as you mentioned, from around inclusion and around sustainability is the financial measures are being looked at, uh, whether it's today's sales or next week's sales or last week's sales. You need to start looking at uh, these other elements with the same sort of diligence. It may be a different cadence, but the same sort of diligence. So you're absolutely right there. And you were talking also about culture and collaboration earlier. I, I'd like to come back to it because one pattern that we found in many organizations is that um, obviously with pandemics and remote work, people had to use a lot more of the digital tools to collaboration. And some research showed, I, I believe it was from Microsoft, that it actually increased the number of intra-team or internal function communication because now the you know every chat was about the, the, the job or the interaction with your direct colleagues and a little less across the um, across the different group. Now, as people start to rebuild the uh, the the life in the office or part office, part remote, how do you suggest leaders try to improve a culture of collaboration, and and I'm aware that it's a you know fifty thousand or multi million dollar question, and that you know it's it's very complex. But a couple of guidelines, maybe, or or, or directive line on how to approach something complex and intangible, such as a culture of collaboration. Yeah, if I take a step back and look at this this change to hybrid workplace. What, what is the context leaders are facing right now? I think there's been a lot of talk about the great resignation. I think it's 4 million yeah. people a month in the U.S. that are resigning. And then when those that didn't resign and you ask them, are you thinking about some other place? Uh, 70% say yes. That's an incredibly high number. And yeah. when you asked, what do you require in your work? Do you want flexibility in your work? 90% say, yes, that's a deciding factor on whether I stay with an organization. So that's the context uh, of, of what leaders are facing today. In building the, the future, creating collaboration, connection in, in the future of work or the, a hybrid world, I think there's a couple of shifts that are critical. One is... You have to listen to that 90%. Flexibility is 90% of people are asking for it. So if you say everyone will do X or everyone will do Y, that may be good for your organization. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but do expect resignations. Do expect a, a churn within your, your employee body because they're saying they don't want that. So that 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 would be one part of the equation. The second is that Historically, I think the company-employee relationship has been parent-child. And going forward, there I think it's an adult-to-adult -adult relationship. So transparent conversations, I'd say um, productive conflict. Conflict's not a bad thing. So actually getting different views out on the table so you can make better decisions and you can come up with better solutions. Are Those two elements are going to drive the ability to make a new workplace work. 
Now, coming back to the workplace, you know, you have to be very careful because there are some people who can't, uh, at least at the moment. They're actually, they're vulnerable. And to get on a train or a plane or, a, you know, the underground is not an option. And it would be very easy to create a haves and have-nots. Those people who can be in and can bump into each other, have the informal conversations, create connections, and those people who can't. And I was with a client the other day, and they've been doing a lot of uh, Zoom calls, and but everybody was on the same platform. And it moved to 60% of the people were in a meeting room, and 40% were on the call. And that was a little less effective, but managed pretty well because everybody was looking at the same Zoom. It went to sort of a 70 or 80, 20, and they stopped doing the slides on Zoom. They actually had the the uh, slides on a screen in the room. And I was one of the people on the Zoom. I couldn't read what was going, what was on the slides. They were mm-hmm. on the other side of the room in the distance and there were, the sound was muffled. So suddenly I had a feeling for what it was to be a have not in that, you know, live or virtual experience. So companies are going to have to figure out how do you, I make it a great experience. So for somebody who is live or somebody virtual, two other things I'd share collaboration uh, is a, is a habit and it needs to be reinforced and it needs to be rewarded So if you want to see the number of, we just did a survey among CEOs around the world and we asked them two questions. One is which cultural elements are critical to your strategic ambition? And so they they had to choose three out of eight or 10. The second question was which cultural elements are strongest in your organization and you're you're paying attention to them. Only 11% of the time, were, was there a match between those two questions? So CEOs knew what they needed. They weren't doing it. They were doing yeah. something else. So if you want collaboration, and actually most of them said collaboration was critical to their success, then you need to actually dial up, how do I, how do I create uh, collisions, opportunities for cross-organizational collaboration? How do I reward that? How do I recognize that so it's sustainable? And then the second part is one of the deepest seated needs in us as human beings. But leaders will need to step up and whether it's hybrid, all at work, or everybody uh, virtual, is to continually look at how do I create a sense of belonging? We need to belong, every one of us. Uh, And it probably goes back to the days we were hunter-gatherers and being kicked out of the group virtually pretty much meant death. So we have a strong drive to belong. Uh, When we don't feel a sense of belonging, it causes uh, psychological pain and it causes disruption to work. So I would be doubling down on every touch point. How do I create a sense of belonging? Because that, that that is the foundation of collaboration is a sense of belonging. Once again, a very uh, human uh, message. Yeah, a last question for you, uh, Dustin. Where can we learn more about the work that you do or any other insights that you share today? So uh, I guess the best places to go, uh, we, we publish on a regular basis on our, our website, 
that's Hydrogen Struggles website. Uh, we've published the I, I reference the the study we've done with the 500 CEOs across the globe and how they're seeing leadership and culture. Uh, we have an inclusive leader paper that's come out based on our, the data we're collecting. Uh, we are about to promote some work we've done across generations within organizations around the expectations and capabilities of leaders in the new the new world, the future of work. So there's some interesting, there's always interesting things coming up there. That would be the best place. Uh, probably like you, you can also find us on, on YouTube and um, other platforms speaking, sharing what we're, what we're thinking. Even for us, and I'm sure you find the same thing, it's a moving landscape. We're learning and we're constantly learning and we're learning quickly because for us to support our clients, we have to be sensing and touching what's out there, what's coming our way. I think for our clients, it's the same thing. If you're learning faster than the world's changing around you, you should be okay. Or if you're learning at least as fast, if you're learning more slowly than the world is changing around you, that's a big watch out. So I, do, I hopefully that answers the question, but that's where I would go. Um, uh, I Obviously, I, I talk to people all the time. So if someone wanted to pick my brain, I am always pretty much always available. Well, thank you, because we get a chance to pick a lot of your brain in the last uh, 40 minutes or so. So, well, thank you so much for for the time and looking forward to uh, to see what the world will be made of. So am I. And thank you for, for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Pleasure. This was Abroad Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. I hope you learned something valuable. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and any feedback or rating is greatly appreciated. On LinkedIn and in real life, my name is Benoit Hardivelli and I thank you for your time. Music